0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jesse Zarley, a host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Marisol Lebron about her new book, Policing Life and Death, Race, Violence, and Resistance in Puerto Rico, which was published in 2019 by the University of California Press. Marisol is an assistant professor in the Department of Mexican-American and Latina-Latino Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Her scholarship has appeared in publications such as Radical History Review, Souls, a Journal of Black Politics, Culture, and Society, NACLA Report on the Americas, and the edited volume, Policing the Planet, Why the Policing Crisis Led to Black Lives Matter, published by Verso. She's also actively participated in conversations about Puerto Rico and its diaspora in Truthout and The Guardian, and is one of the co-creators of the Puerto Rico Syllabus. Marisol Lebrun, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Jesse. So Marisol, I wonder
0: if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Where did you get your PhD and what brought you to study Puerto Rico?
1: Yeah, so I got my PhD in American Studies at uh, NYU, and the reason why I got interested in Puerto Rico and particularly in this project, um, I'm I'm New Eurekan, so I'm uh, Puerto Rican, raised in the diaspora, um, so I have kind of a um, familial tie to to the place, but um, when I was at NYU, I became really interested in questions of um, pop culture when I first started my PhD. So the way that I got to this current book project was kind of through some circuitous paths. Um, But when I started my PhD, I really thought I was going to um, do my dissertation about uh, reggaeton music and uh, kind of representations of race and gender and sexuality in reggaeton music. And so my first year of coursework, I was doing all of this research and had kind of started doing some reading and research on the precursor to reggaeton, which was underground rap music in Puerto Rico. And as I was doing those uh, that set of reading, I kept coming across these discussions about a series of um, police raids in a uh, number of record stores across especially the San Juan area in Puerto Rico where they had uh, confiscated uh, underground rap uh, CDs and and mixtapes. Uh, they had arrested record store employees um, and it seemed like there was this kind of public discourse of a, a intense police crackdown on it because it was classified as obscene materials, as, as pornographic materials, because of some of the lyrical content. Um, and so as I was doing this research, I, got, I saw that a lot of people were tying it to this set of um, policing measures called Mano Dura Contra Crimen, or Iron Fist Against Crime, um, which had sent police into public housing in Puerto Rico. And so once I started kind of coming across that, I shifted away from the kind of emphasis on reggaeton music and more onto an emphasis in uh, on policing. And um, that's where I what I ended up focusing my dissertation on. And that's kind of the product that ended up being this book is a, an exploration of... Uh, Mano de Contra el Crimen and its legacies in Puerto Rico and kind of what that policing measure can tell us about both the colonial relationship between the U.S. and Puerto Rico, but also kind of local patterns of um, racial hierarchy and inequality in, locally in Puerto Rico. So I think in terms of my own training as an American Studies scholar, it really grows out of a kind of desire to do a kind of transnational project. It um, comes out of a desire to do a project that is really um, dedicated to rigorous analysis of um, structural power and inequality. And I think that comes through and hopefully comes through in this, this book.
0: Absolutely. That's a really fascinating story that it started about reggaeton and underground hip hop. Um, in that vein, I'm curious if you could talk a little, I'm, I'm very, as a scholar, very interested in sources. And I think that uh, turning to the book, many of our listeners in their own work um, or readings, wrestle with the challenges of either using modern state secrets, classified or highly censored government documents, or for earlier colonialists and early modernists, um, working with coerced testimonies of slaves, indigenous peoples, subaltern groups, um in the case of Puerto Rico and in your book, you write about a subject kind of actively hiding their sources from you in plain sight. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about this idea of creating an archive of policing, you know, how you, in your experience, built around what kind of in the U.S. we call the blue wall of silence, um, but that, but if you could kind of talk about the the police as an archival source, but also your personal experiences um, encountering that as a researcher.
1: Right. So that's one of the things, as you know, I, I talk about in the introduction was kind of the intense difficulty I um, had in actually, you know, doing this, this research or trying to figure out how to do this research. And I remember as a graduate student, which is one of the things that I think, you know, for listeners out there who are currently graduate students and are feeling really, really stuck <laughs> with their research or really traumatized by the process of doing the research, um, I just remember, like crying uh, a lot of days while I was while I was in Puerto Rico and trying to do this research just because it was so incredibly um, difficult uh, for, for a number of reasons. So one, as you know, is just the notorious kind of difficulty, um, which has been pretty well documented, both in terms of U.S. context, but also especially in Latin America. Um, and the Caribbean with the difficulties of studying the police period. Um, They're obviously a kind of arm of the state that is incredibly um, concerned with um, image control, very concerned with maintaining um, civilian respect um, for the institution, right? Um, If not necessarily always trust of the institution, but at least a kind of fear and respect of the institution in order to, to maintain authority. So as a result, they keep a pretty tight lid on a lot of information. And so one of the things that I would find was I had to get really creative in the archive about how I got access to official police documents. One of the reasons why that was was um, specific to my case was the fact that when I started doing this research was uh, in... I had done some initial work in 2010, but really in 2011 and 12 was when I did the bulk of the research for this project. And in 2011, the Department, U.S. Department of Justice had released a report calling the PRPD, PRPD the um, Puerto Rico Police Department, one of the most uh, violent and corrupt forces under U.S. jurisdiction. Uh, and so, and they eventually ended up entering under a t- consent decree. So because of that, there was an... Already kind of the systems in place that already kind of kept that information under wraps kind of tightened a great deal. And it was really difficult for me to get access to any kind of official um, communication or sources. Um, And so one of the things I had to do was try to um, kind of round robin around some sources. So, for instance, not being able to use official police archives, I had to use, see what I could get in, in certain other kind of state archives like the Senate archives or um, kind of the Junta de Planificación in, in Puerto Rico, right? So other kind of state archives they had cataloged some of those police documents. The other thing that that kind of information lockdown um, did, which I'm really grateful for actually, is that since I couldn't necessarily talk to police or get a lot of official police information. Um, because of the weariness of talking to outsiders in particular, which I was as somebody who was coming from the us, um, as somebody who was not kind of born and raised in Puerto Rico and someone who also is uh, very visibly queer, whose Spanish is not necessarily the greatest, right um, was that I had to also start to look beyond official police um, archives and I think I in that kind of aftermath of that became very appreciative of that shift that was kind of forced on me and really horrible when it was happening. But um, as I was doing the the project, one of the things I did is it really forced me to focus less on what the police tell us about themselves and more on what people who actually experience criminalization and police violence um, uh, have to say about what the police are actually doing, right? And so that kind of focus, for me, emerged through various modes of um, expressive culture. So things like uh, rap music, for instance, became one source that I used, um, Zines, um, interview data um, and and media coverage, right? Both in terms of kind of mainstream media, but also alternative media. Um, in Puerto Rico. So, how were people who were experiencing um Mano de Contra Crimen living under it, but then also people who are kind of 20 years later, um, people who were raised with nor- with um, Mano de Contra Crimen being normalized? How do they think about this kind of culture that it's created, right? Or this kind of normalization of police power that it's created? So I had to get kind of creative with the with the sources, and I think um, I would encourage I think you know encourage scholars to think about what are the other ways we can tell these stories without necessarily um, reifying the official discourse. And I think we're seeing that now with the recent controversy over, um, scholars using these, um, kind of FBI files. So, for instance, the controversy is happening right now around um, F, so a historian who's been using FBI files about Martin Luther King, which we know were doctored, right, which were um, intended precisely as a tool of harassment and and to discredit him, right? Um, so we can't necessarily always trust these sources. And so I think... Um, It's not that we throw those sources out or we don't necessarily consult them, but we also look at other ways of telling these stories and in particular, um, try to figure out ways to privilege the voices of those folks who are actually experiencing um, these forms of state power.
0: And I and in reading through the book, I mean, I think I think the richness of what you accomplished is really really impressive and inspiring for people. So it, for 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 people who it can be anything from a, a misfiled uh, a collection of documents to active silencing of documents, the the kind of building alternative um, building around sources and thinking differently about official stories, I think was really successful. Um, so I think um, this is a good jumping off point to turn to the content of the first true few chapters and the kind of core of the books, this, this, this tough on crime policy under the, the government of the, the Commonwealth Governor Pedro Rosselló during the 90s, this Mano Dura Contra el Crimen or Iron Fist uh, Against Crime. Um, in recounting this history, you develop this idea or you, you work on this idea of punitive government. Governance. I was wondering if you could both talk about Rosello's policies, uh, its origins, and this notion of punitive government governance that you discuss.
1: Yeah. So the and I'll just say for kind of listeners, the book is is split in two and like kind of two sections. And you know, the first half of the book really focuses on Manado um, de Contracrimen and the um administration. And the second half focuses on kind of um, the more more recent kind of period, and asking kind of how um, those ideas have become normalized as what policing means and should look like, and the ways that um, criminalized populations, but also activists, um, have to negotiate kind of the normalization of, of mano dura contra el crimen becoming what it means to uh, police in Puerto Rico. So. Um, Mano de Contra Crimen gets credited to Pedro Rosello who was the governor um, in Puerto Rico from uh, 93 to 2000. And um, he initiates it as kind of a campaign promise to crack down on crime because uh, during the early 19 late 1980s, early 1990s, Puerto Rico had experienced a tremendous kind of spike in um, crime and particularly in drug-related crime. Um, And that happens for a variety of reasons, including kind of, um, you know, uh, tightening of border security that made uh, kind of uh, drugs crossing in ports of Miami or in Mexico more difficult, which made a kind of um, drug trafficking uh, circuitry in the Caribbean and particularly in Puerto Rico, much more pronounced than it had been previously. But it also happens because essentially by that time, The political and economic arrangement, the Commonwealth arrangement between the U.S. and Puerto Rico had really started to falter in being able to provide um, for its citizens, right? Any kind of semblance of what we might term a kind of good life, one marked by um, financial security, uh, stability, uh, uh, opportunities for kind of upward social mobility, um, all of those kind of uh, signifiers that had been part of what was promised through the colonial relationship, right, or this this kind of neo colonial relationship of the Commonwealth um, arrangement between Puerto Rico and the US uh, really had kind of run its course and um, economic development had started to falter, and as a result, the informal economy had really expanded during this period and led to a kind of rise in in what we would call street crime, right? Um, And so essentially, because of the limitations placed on the Puerto Rican, local Puerto Rican government, as a result of this Commonwealth arrangement, really, it's not able to um, devise its own economic solutions and policies. Um, it's not really able to respond in a complete and full manner to the needs of its citizens. Um, and the U.S. government was not necessarily interested in um, kind of dealing with the failures of development they had made themselves pronounced uh, during this time period. And so what I argue in the book is that this creates a turn towards um a mode of punitive governance, right? So if the political and economic arrangement um, can't be dealt with in a meaningful way because of the colonial relationship, then what the local uh, Puerto Rican government does, and this happens in its most kind of pronounced way under Joseo, is that they turn to policing and other modes of kind of punitive power, including um, prisons, uh, kind of forms of state sanctioned, and non-state and sanctioned violence, right? Um, in order to essentially keep those effects of a failed colonial development model um, in control, or at least to have the appearance that they're doing stuff to um, keep those those effects uh, under control. And so, what we see over the course of the 1990s is um, these efforts to. Really, counter what is a weak state um, with the image of a strong state present through its security apparatus in people's everyday lives, right? And so this is something that you know is not necessarily unique to Puerto Rico. um this is something that we see happening in many u s cities throughout Latin America um in Europe and other sites around the world, right? This is something that we can argue is endemic to neoliberal capitalism right is a kind of rollback of the state and a roll forward or roll out of its security apparatus um, but what i would argue is that what makes the kind of case um, in puerto rico unique and worth kind of paying attention to is the way in which it develops in relation to pre- intense colonial failure um, and it develops in a kind of specific mode to attend to that kind of um, colonial crisis that arises um, as the kind of Commonwealth starts to run out of steam. So that's what I trace in the book is these attempts to really um, create this punitive um, show of force um, in order to, to counter the the kind of image of a weak state or the reality of a weak state, really, we could say, um, and What's interesting to me about that is the ways in which it actually functions through the reproduction and reification of some of the most pernicious inequalities that have uh, long existed in Puerto Rican society, and in particular through um, targeting the most vulnerable citizens in Puerto Rican society. So um, Black Puerto Ricans and dark-skinned Puerto Ricans, uh, low-income Puerto Ricans, Puerto Ricans who lived in... Uh, public housing, and other kind of um, residentially marginalized uh, spaces, Um, queer Puerto Ricans um, experienced kind of the worst forms of state violence under Mano Contra Crimen and those kind of punitive forms of governance that uh, followed in its wake. Um, They were, in a lot of ways, pinpointed as the source of insecurity um, so it was these poor people who lived in the projects that were the source of all of the problems um, confronting Puerto Rico. If you didn't feel safe, if you were worried about getting carjacked, if you were worried about the deteriorating um, state of things, right? Joseon and other kind of politicians and elites um, and technocrats pointed to public housing residents and said, those are the people who are responsible? And so, what they did as a key component of Mano de Contra Crimen is then send police and military forces in in the form of the Puerto Rican National Guard to raid and occupy public housing for days, weeks, and sometimes months at a time, um, in order to show that these people who were causing supposedly causing the problems in Puerto Rican society that were the cause of crime that were the cr- cause of violence the cause of disorder were being handled right and handled effectively and so what this does is is shift the tension away from colonial crisis um onto the shoulders of actually the victims of these pr- Profound kind of economic and political catastrophes that were that were happening in Puerto Rico, kind of at the at the turn of the century. We took
0: it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end. What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I- I was curious if you could maybe elaborate a little a little bit more. Um, I think your your book adds a lot to um both challenging and expanding our understanding of neoliberal capitalism, particularly in Latin America, but also globally. I think we often think of, you know, enclosure, kind of restarting prim- primitive accumulations um, taking place often in the countryside um, over energy politics, pipelines, the water wars in Bolivia, for instance. But I think that what you show that's so interesting is on the one hand, on the money side, the the gutting of public services is not just going to nothing, it's being directly invested in police militarization, but also the particular spatialization of um, of policing and criminality. So you talked just recently about uh, public housing, um, and later on I'll ask about about university campuses. But maybe you could go a little bit more into this um, this relationship, or what you think about neoliberalism and policing, particularly in Puerto Rico.
1: Yeah, I think this this relationship between neoliberalism and policing is a really key one, right? I think one of the things for us to be mindful of is that you know we don't want to necessarily exceptionalize um, like policing as intrinsically tied to to neoliberalism in some way that's new, right? We can think about policing as always kind of um, related to the protection and maintenance of capital. Right. And so there are new ways in which that starts to kind of develop or new ways that that looks under neoliberal capitalism. So some of the things that we see in Latin America and and they also kind of um, are things that are also happening in Puerto Rico, right, is kind of an enclosure of public space. Right. So thinking about we start, you know, these classic kind of texts and, and, uh, you know, Latin American studies, something about, you know, city of walls, right. In Brazil and the kind of um, all of the great literature around gating, right. And talk of fear and crime, right. These are in many ways um, not just kind of um, books that tell us something about a kind of um, transition to democracy. Right. But they also tell us something really important about neoliberalism. Right. And in particular, as the state starts to retreat as, as part of these kind of neoliberal doctrines, right, of less less state um, financing, more private accumulation, um, that there's a kind of increase in citizens' feelings of being under siege, of being um, kind of uh, not protected by the state, right, and these calls for a stronger kind of state to deal with crime, right, um, and then... You know, for me, one of the interesting things that I saw in the case of Puerto Rico, right, that kind of was a little bit different than how we saw these connections between um, both a kind of neoliberal policing that has to do with enclosure, but also one that has to do with kind of resource extraction, right, so what we would see in terms of kind of privatization efforts or in the case of um, you know a place like Ferguson right like fees right so like um, kind of fee extraction um, one of the things that made Puerto Rico a little bit different from the kind of US and Latin American cases but it's embedded within that circuitry is that because of its kind of unique colonial status it gets kind of it it promotes itself right and this is something I talk about in the second chapter of the book it's as a way to deal with this kind of declining colonial significance to the U.S., it starts to tout itself um, to the U.S. as a kind of innovator of um, new forms of policing to deal with these unique crises uh, facing kind of the Americas at the the close of the century, right, Uh, in the 1990s. And it, in particular, tries to promote itself as a kind of uh, bridge between the Americas, between uh, North America and South America, as uniquely posed to do that precisely because of its colonial history, right? And so essentially, Roséo and his administration, um, you know, say to Clinton, particularly the, in thinking about this as the moment of um, the the NAFTA agreement, right, and this turn towards the kind of South, right, as this kind of neoliberal laboratory, we could say, Um, Rosario sees this as a moment to kind of cement Puerto Rico's importance to the U.S., right, and to really position itself as a leader in the Caribbean and Latin America, Um, and it says we can show Latin Americans how to, um, effectively police their urban spaces. We can become a model for how they should, um, privatize public housing, um, how they can turn their kind of, um, military forces or former, former military forces into, um, Uh, effective uh, tools against the war on crime um, or in the war on drugs. Right. And so this, this kind of becomes this unique moment for Puerto Rico where it's like dwindling significance, right. In the face of NAFTA gets kind of flipped to say like, actually uh, you're trying to get into Latin America and we can help you do that. Right. And we can help to become essentially this kind of, um, colonial middleman figure that can make, you know, the dream of neoliberalism true, right? So if the dream of free trade and neoliberalism is kind of unencumbered, smooth transits of capital and ideas, right? Then what Puerto Rico was saying was that particularly in the realms of security, that it could do that. It could provide that for the U S right. And so I think that's one of the really key things, um, that I try to focus on in the book, right, is that although we see Puerto Rico fitting into some of these larger kind of um, trends around neoliberalism, again, it's kind of colonial relationship with the U.S. and then also its position in relation to its Latin American neighbors and Caribbean neighbors um, really gives local elites on the ground in Puerto Rico a kind of different set of um, motivations for why and how They insert themselves into these emerging um, and consolidating kind of neoliberal economic orders, right, at this specific time. Um, And the significance of what those those kind of economic shifts mean to them are a little bit different from the ground that they're standing on.
0: In terms of what you, you you know, you just began that answer with this idea of policing and its relation to capital being much older than, you know, the end of the Cold War. I was so struck, you have a quote early on um, from a government spokesperson in Puerto Rico describing uh, crime as a cancer for which policing was a difficult but necessary medicine. It was such an echo of the rhetoric of the Pinochet dictatorship, um, an anti-communist rhetoric in the previous decades. Um, but you also note that liminal space that Puerto Rico inhabits both as kind of a colonized and continually uh, experiences colonial relationship to the United States, but also being um, part of Latin America. I was wondering if you might comment a little bit um, on something that was very surprising for me was how Puerto Rico did serve as a model for policing of uh, public housing and anti-crime initiatives in both uh, in the US, particularly in Washington D.C. and in New Orleans.
1: Yeah, so we see it a, a couple of, a couple of times in the chapter, so I'll, or in the book rather in a couple of chapters, but um, Thinking about kind of what I was just talking about in relation to the second chapter, as Puerto Rico is like kind of trying to negotiate this NAFTA era new reality and its its new place in a kind of emerging global order, one of the things it tries to do is precisely present itself as a model for law enforcement and particularly law enforcement of uh, kind of public housing um, and kind of novel ways of using militarized policing in order to kind of achieve uh, winning the war on drugs, right? And so one of the things that we see, and it's really, I think, an echo of kind of previous ways in which Puerto Rico has been understood, but also utilized um, under US rule, is that in the 1990s, much like in the 1950s, we start to see technocrats from around the U.S. and around Latin America and the Caribbean begin to make pilgrimages to Puerto Rico to see this kind of, um, you know, in the 1950s, the miracle of the economic miracle and transformation of uh, Operation Bootstrap, which rapidly industrialized um, the island, Right. Um, And then in the 1990s, we start to see um, technocrats coming to see its miracle in public housing. So how it had cleaned up public housing and these um, zones of kind of abandonment and despair and turned them into zones of what they termed empowerment, Um, but did so basically at, you know, the other end of a military rifle. Right. Um, And so we start to see in particular two, uh, kind of public housing um, uh, districts really start to take a shine to uh, to that model. And really the case of Washington, D.C. becomes the most emblematic, right? They really try to bring Manolura-style policing to public housing in D.C. and use Puerto Rico as a specific example. So one of the things that we see in... 94, is that um, uh, the mayor of D.C. is basically saying that the city is is losing the war on drugs and that she's doing everything she can and more extreme measures need to be taken, right? And she really borrows a page from Governor Rosario's playbook um, to say that, like, if we're saying this is a war on drugs, then we need to treat it like a war on drugs, And so she makes a petition to the Clinton administration to ask for um, National Guard forces to be mobilized um, and to assist with kind of uh, drug enforcement, interdiction efforts, but also to kind of um, focus their attention in uh, public housing and other kind of low-income communities around the DC area. And she explicitly cites the example of Puerto Rico and the so-called success that they had in transforming their public housing authority into um, in, into a place where police had complete control over the situation, right? Um, but a lot of this was illu- illusion, right? So um, Puerto Rico, although it sold itself as a model for how to, um, you know, gain control and reduce crime, um, what we start to see, and one of the things that I track in the book is that actually, um, crime increases in a lot of these places where the police are raiding and occupying, right? Um, in particular homicides increase, the argument that I make in the book as to why homicide, we see homicides increase is due precisely to the pressure that these, um, occupation and raids put on, um, the drug points in terms of, um, Aggravating already existing competitions and tensions between rival um, drug gangs, right? They control various drug points throughout the island, and. The police kind of knew that and used that as part of their strategy to actually eradicate the drug trade, right? And so, one of the things that, um, at various points throughout the book that I talk about, is that there is a kind of tacit acceptance among the police that, mano contra crimen, and the pressure that it puts on on the drug trade is going to momentarily increase um, homicides. But that, that those homicides are good. The, the or that increase in homicides is not like a sign of failure, but is good because the people who are actually being killed are drug dealers, right? And so there was this tacit acceptance that s- these lives were not worth protecting, right? This was not the Puerto Rican public that you know politicians were promising to make their lives better, right? But these were the people, you know, going back to the metaphor that you cited who were seen as a blight and cancer on Puerto Rican society, right? So um, that was folks who were involved in the informal economy and then it started to expand out to be anyone who lived in public housing or looked like they might live in public housing because of race and class um, kind of markers, right? Or spatial markers. Um, And so we start to see that the logics of it mark these citizens as enemies of the state right and that's the kind of thing that falls out of that image that gets circulated to places like dc and new orleans and chicago and miami and throughout latin america right we see also during this period that um delegations from um, in particular the costa rican government come and also are playing with this idea of kind of militarized um, drug enforcement and public housing um, privatization um, and specifically looking at the case of puerto rico to do that Um, so i think that we see that happening throughout the book where puerto rico becomes this model but we also see that puerto rico is also borrowing um, strategies and adapting them too and so you mentioned um New Orleans and one of the things I talk about in the fourth chapter is that Puerto Rico looks to New Orleans as a kind of example for um rehabilitating especially post-Roselló under the Sila C- uh, María Calderón administration rehabilitating Puerto Rico's image right um and regaining civilian trust precisely because essentially under Roselló people had seen the ways in which they totally um, mm. treated certain lives as disposable, right? And treated certain areas as um, the locus of kind of insecurity and everything negative in, in Puerto Rican society, right? And so um, the Sila Maria Calderon uh, administration tries to rehabilitate their, their the, the PRPD's image by looking at how New Orleans under... Um, Pennington, under Chief Pennington, had tried to rehabilitate their image. But the thing that we see is that they import the so-called Pennington plan, which really was just a continuation of um, intense targeted policing of low-income areas, but with more of a kind of PR spin to it. So in a lot of ways, Puerto Rico is like fitting into these kind of international um, and transnational circuits of kind of um, police knowledge and um, technocratic kind of expertise um, and borrowing from them, but also contributing to those, um, to those circuits. So one of the kind of arguments that I make in the book is that we can't just think of this always as a top-down process that's um, you know, kind of you know, US bad, Puerto Rico victim, right? And, and that all of these policies are coming top-down Um, onto the U.S. or from the U.S. onto Puerto Rico, right, because of the colonial relationship, that's definitely happening, but that's not the full extent of what's happening in Puerto Rico. And if we think about policing in that way um, and policing policies in that way, then we really lose the ways in which local elites and politicians were inserting themselves into this kind of global economy of ideas around policing expertise And attempting to reassert themselves as key players, both in the region, but also in relation to the United States.
0: To kind of shift gears and get at what you just said about the kind of local elites, I, I really appreciated what you said about kind of complicating that relationship between the US and Latin America, where it doesn't just go and do what it wants and people follow suit, that there are elites invested in these projects as well on their own terms. I'm wondering if you might talk a little bit about some of the resistance and resilience to these policies, maybe beginning with um, your chapter on the underground hip hop uh, and rap um, movement and culture. Um, and what, what, as you said earlier, was uh, partly your inspiration to getting to this project in the first place
1: yeah so I didn't completely drop the underground rap stuff it did end up in the book and it's it's uh, one of the definitely the basis for one of the chapters in the book but one of the things that we see is that um, and I tried to really focus on this throughout the book right is precisely this idea that you know Puerto Ricans and in particular vulnerable Puerto Ricans are not just like passive victims of punitive governance right that they're um, they fought back, they spoke against it, and they resisted in ways that were kind of subtle and moreover, um throughout the entire history of Mano de Contra Crimen, but also into the present as Mano de Contra Crimen has kind of become... Um, and its outcomes have kind of become normalized within Puerto Rican society as just like necessary byproducts of of policing or what it means to police in in Puerto Rico. And so we see that like expressive media in particular becomes a key venue for Puerto Ricans to push back, right? And so this is one of the reasons why I think like it's perhaps been difficult for folks to capture the full extent of um, resistance that was happening among um, kind of criminalized populations because it didn't look necessarily always like traditional protests and resistance right it's not necessarily the people were going out into the streets and marching or showing up at local elected officials offices and demanding kind of um to speak with them although that did happen right but that was not always what it looked like and so sometimes it was things that were a little bit more subtle and so um It could just be, you know, speaking out and um, presenting a counter narrative to the press. Right. And so one of the arguments that I make is that it's really important for us to pay attention to the moments when um, public housing residents and other um, criminalized kind of populations speak to the media and what they say about their experience of policing. Right. Um, Because those become key moments where these folks are actually speaking back against the government right and its attempt to paint them as all dangerous as a a kind of completely negative force or as actually welcoming of these policing measures right because one of the things that the government said was oh, well, public housing residents actually want us to send the military in, right? Because they're sick of living under the thumb of these these drug gangs, right? And so we see that the the public housing residents were very strategic and um, savvy about kind of um, speaking out against these kind of ideas in in the media, right? One of the other things why it's important to look at these moments is also because Puerto Rican society was so... um incredibly segregated by this time right um there's a number of kind of um activists and cultural critics who will actually refer to this moment as a moment where we see the rise of um el apartheid boricua right or puerto rican apartheid right where this the kind of ways in which the security apparatus both in terms of the private security apparatus but the state security apparatus And the rise of gating both of public housing and private um, kind of more middle class and upper class residences basically created a situation where it was incredibly difficult for folks of different social classes to actually interact with each other, right? And so these communications in the media become a space where Puerto Ricans, um, vulnerable Puerto Ricans are actually speaking to their fellow Puerto Ricans and being like, the government is telling you X, Y, Z, but what's really happening is this right? And so these become really important spaces. The other kind of examples that I focus on in the book, one of them, for instance, is the underground rap chapter, right? And so um, in that chapter, one of the things that I talk about is actually the most astute kind of critiques of policing at the time were actually happening um, by young uh, folks who were involved in the underground rap scene, both as kind of um, artists and and as fans, right? Because those in, in both lyrics and kind of also discussions to the media or comments to the media. Right. One of the things that they did um, underground rappers was really show how much of a smoke screen mama, the was right. And they were like, they called out the fact that like the police made these giant shows. All they did was harass people who were just hanging out and trying to like smoke weed or hang out with their friends, uh, like in public housing or at the drug points or whatever. And that nothing got better, right? And in fact, things got worse for many of the kind of young people who spent their time in public housing, um, who either worked or were um, associated with folks who worked in the informal drug points they operated there. Um, So they were kind of really clear on the fact that this was, uh, you know, kind of like a cat and mouse game. Like the police would come, they would do this whole show of force, it would temporarily disrupt the drug points, and then that was it, right? That was kind of the the end of it. Nothing got better. Um, the other thing that underground rappers did that was really great also was really try to pierce this facade of police authority. Um, and they did it in ways that were really, really vulgar, um, really funny, right? And that really upset a lot of people, right? And so that's part of why we see um, what I was talking about at the beginning of our interview, this focus on underground rap as um, dangerous and as obscene um, had to do precisely with the fact that it was a space where young people, in particular young men who were dark skinned or black, um, used that space to kind of ridicule punitive governance and call it out and actually offer some kind of different modes of you know relationality um, and and kind of you know free time, uh, leisure time, right? So. I track those in the book definitely as the moments where kind of expressive culture becomes really key and important and kind of piercing this kind of official state or official police discourse about what mano Dura, mano agreements kind of achievements were or, or what it was trying to do um, the other kind of examples that I focus in focus on in the book are um, Kind of look a little different, right? Because they're looking at kind of what's happening uh, now in terms of how has Modelo contra crimen kind of um, solidified this idea that um, premature death for certain populations, in particular um, vulnerable populations, is an acceptable um, and perhaps even desirable outcome of police work. Um, how is it kind of? You know, Mono that normalize this idea that um, public housing and other low-income communities and black communities or spaces are um, criminogenic, right? Um, so, what I look at is is a couple of different examples now where people are sh- trying to negotiate the kind of terrain created by de confinement, and perhaps in some cases offer a kind of alternative. Uh, Uh, modes, right, for creating community um, safety and security. So uh, the other chapters, for instance, um, one of the chapters I follow, um, social media kind of debates around um, how to deal with crime and in particular the idea that death is an acceptable outcome for for crime. So I look at the case of a publicist um, as well as a folk singer um, to, to folks who were killed in Puerto Rico and the kind of, um, response that their murders created, um, in particular around the police idea that like, well, these people who are either deviant because of gender sexuality, um, or because they're engaged in the informal uh, economy, they just get what they deserve, right? And so I track a couple of really interesting online um, debates through social media of people pushing back against that idea, right? And actually making an argument that um, as a society, uh, it's the responsibility of of both the, the state, but also people, right? Everyday people to... Um, keep each other safe, right? And to create conditions that allow all lives to kind of thrive. Um, and then the kind of book ends with um, an example of a feminist public health organization in Loisa, which is a low income, um, predominantly uh, black uh, uh, municipality and town outside of the San Juan area. Um, and this public health organization, Diyar Salud, and their attempt to actually create essentially community accountability mechanisms um, to deal with gang violence there they actually allow them to decenter the police uh, in order to c- create community safety. The reason why they did this is because uh, when the police came and to deal with kind of um, gang violence or to you know intervene in the drug trade there it actually ended up creating more violence and trauma the police would come and often would be um, incredibly brutal with uh, residents they would often um, express uh, a lot of racial animus towards um, uh, residents um, using racial slurs all kinds of stuff like that and um they actually were like, the police don't necessarily keep us safe. They don't make us feel safer. And so what we saw them do is actually work with um, young men who were formerly um, gang involved um, and do direct interventions, right? So when violence was likely to occur, right, or was um, on the verge of kind of happening, Uh, They would dispatch these violence interrupters to um, intervene with these young men in the local um, gangs or corillos um, to kind of create this sense of community safety. And this, again, is a really interesting moment where we see Puerto Rico inserted into a larger kind of circuitry, this time not around police expertise, but around kind of anti-police kind of expertise, because they essentially import the uh, ceasefire model from Chicago, right, that had kind of arisen out of African-American community activism in Chicago for dealing with um, rampant kind of police abuse, right, that didn't necessarily necessarily make uh, communities feel safer. And so I end with that because I think there's a really interesting lesson there for us in terms of not only how, communities are actually able, if you give them the resources to deal with these issues on their own, right? And um, if you kind of, it's not about creating a security vacuum or anything like that, but it is about stepping back and saying, what are actually the resources that communities want and need when they say that they feel unsafe, Right. And what Taller Salud and their Acuerdo de Paz and their ceasefire program did is they actually said the resources that we need for these um, young men include jobs, they include education, they include um, more uh, recreational resources, uh, more training, and they also include just people treating them like their lives matter, right? Like their lives are not completely inconsequential, right? And so it took people who had previously had that experience with being in the local Corillos to really validate those those young men's lives, right, and to understand those young men's lives in a way that the police can't, right, um, and the police can't provide those kind of resources.
0: I thought it, yeah, I thought it was imp- that story the story of Tayer salud wasn't it was really incredible and inspiring and i think an important way to show um through the kind of second half of the book that you've just gone over a bit um the difficulty the kind of life-threatening even um day-to-day work of walking the line between um, resisting things like mano dura and police brutality, but also not accepting the language and rhetoric of criminality, which in your earlier examples, um, for folks who read the book uh, in the student strike at the University of Puerto Rico in 2011, 2012, um, in, uh, in, in the social media discussions and debates, that it's so easy for those frustrated with the government to accept the idea of criminality as part of resistance rhetoric, um and I think at Tayer Salud you really you really show that that the work that they do um there's no kind of easy way or silver bullet to undoing those discourses the kind of uh, the ideas of um race, class, gender, and marginalization that you develop throughout um so i so I really um so. I wanted to ask you before we leave, I usually ask one final question about your current research, but I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about um, your work with the Puerto Rico syllabus, because I think that that in, in your teaching and your kind of work as a scholar is another example of those kind of transnational or transcolonial connections that Puerto Rico Uh, can be involved in in the United States and Latin America?
1: Yeah. So I am one of the um, co-creators and project leaders of the Puerto Rico Syllabus. And for folks um, who are listening to this and want to check it out, it's um, PuertoRicoSyllabus.com. And you can go on social media and do hashtag uh, PR syllabus and we'll kind of get a whole host of Access to some of the kind of uh, posts and uh, articles and debates uh, that have been happening on social media as well, um, but essentially it's a project that um, I'm involved in with a number of other uh, uh, scholars, feminist scholars, um, who for us it was really important were folks who were at a variety of different ranks. So. Uh, uh, the most senior person, Yadimar Monilla, is a full professor. I'm an assistant professor, and then we have um, two uh, grad students who also uh, uh, work with us, right? And one of the things that was really important for us was that this was a kind of um, woman-led project. Um, it's a it's a feminist project, and it's one that is kind of um, cross rank, right? And because What we noticed in a lot of the kind of ways in which the debt crisis was framed and who was talking about it was it was incredibly male dominated. Um, It was incredibly um, rooted in this kind uh, kind of male expertise and economistic thinking that we found incredibly troubling because the kind of experiences of the debt we felt were really not being represented, right? They were really kind of boiling down to this, um, you know, really purely economistic thinking, right? So the experience of kind of marginalized populations of women, of queer folks were really falling out of what the effects of Puerto Rico's debt crisis were, right? So telling people that Puerto Rico has more than $72 billion in debt, right? Doesn't necessarily give us a sense of what that means for people's everyday lives, right? And so rather than getting kind of bogged down in these kind of purely economic kind of frames, we really wanted to highlight like what this meant for people in their everyday lives, right? And in particular, we would focus on. Uh, women, queer folks, um, people of color in Puerto Rico, immigrants of Puerto Rico, and also what that meant for the diaspora, right? So all of us are working in the diaspora, um, but uh, have different ties, right? So either we're born and raised in Puerto Rico or we're born in the, the diaspora. So also thinking about the makeup of kind of who's on the, who are the project leaders as kind of um, representative of the kinds of transnational um ties right and kind of also um political commitments right that that we wanted to see but essentially what we tried to do with with the syllabus was precisely because so much of it is framed in these really complicated convoluted economistic ways was really say if you knew nothing about the Puerto Rican debt, right? And you were just like, what is going on? What is like the $72 billion? How did it happen? We want to provide a set of kind of tools for people to, you know, essentially dive in and start to understand it. Right. And so it's broken up into a number of sections. So you will get a kind of, this is how the debt was generated. This is what the effects are. These are some of the solutions that are being proposed and kind of get of that but you'll also see examples of um in the syllabus of the incredible resistance to what have been the kind of um solutions proposed by both local and federal uh governments to the debt in particular the the junta de control fiscal or the federal control board which is many people feel is a kind of dictatorial non-democratically elected board that now oversees um Puerto Rico's finances and essentially their primary purpose is to do everything possible to pay back the debt right and to service the debt um, uh, to bondholders and which has resulted in school closures um, and kind of uh, massive cuts to the public good um, pensions all of this kind of stuff right. Um, so we focus on on this kind of resistance, um, and we focus on kind of some of the more kind of um, cultural aspects of the, the kind of ways in which people are speaking out or resisting. Um, but we also try really hard to situate the debt within the colonial context, right? The ongoing colonial context of um, the relationship between Puerto Rico and the U.S., right? So the debt is not just this thing that happens in, you know, 2005 or 2008 or, you know, 2012 or whatever the kind of moment that people often trace it back to. It's something that we make an argument through the kind of sources that we compile on the syllabus is something that we trace back to 1898, right? And the moment of kind of U.S. occupation of Puerto Rico and the imposition of these uh, uh, colonial str- structures, right? Um, that create kind of debt bondage that culminates in the debt crisis that we're seeing today.
0: That's awesome. I look forward to using it in my teaching so thank you for the, the work that you've all done on that. Um, so last question you've uh, we've taken a lot of your time just before you go um, what are you working on today what, what's your what's your next big project?
1: Yeah, so I'm really excited. Uh, We have a a co-edited volume coming out. I have a co-edited volume coming out with uh, Yari Marbonilla called Aftershocks um, of Disaster, Puerto Rico Before and After the Storm. Um, And it's coming out with Haymarket in September to mark the uh, second anniversary of Hurricane Maria. And uh, we're really excited. We just got the kind of advanced reader copies the other day and we compiled over 30 contributors both um, from the diaspora but also from Puerto Rico um, to kind of give an understanding not only of what the impact and effects of um, Hurricane Maria were on on Puerto Ricans but also what the kind of antecedents were, right? And how we can think about and situate uh, the hurricane and what came after as like part of a longer colonial history. So one of the questions we ask, right? Um, is, is Hurricane Maria itself a kind of aftershock or after effect of the colonial relationship, right? Or, um, is, you know, how can we kind of think about it in this longer kind of, uh, relation, right? Uh, because definitely while, uh, we can understand it as a natural disaster, right? The way that this, the kind of ways that the infrastructure was weakened and what kind of came after were not necessarily, um, you know, they were man-made in a lot of ways and they had deep, long-standing ties to this kind of, uh, to both the Puerto Rican debt crisis, but also this longer kind of colonial history. So I have, we have that coming out in September and we're, we're really thrilled and, and excited about that. Um, And then I'm starting kind of the research uh, for my next uh, book project, uh, which is looking at Puerto Rican involvement, international um, solidarity movements over the course of the 20th century. So moments where Puerto Ricans decided to um, align, Puerto Rican activists decided to align themselves with kind of international freedom movements. So whether it be kind of the anti-apartheid movement, the um, uh, anti-Vietnam War movement, uh, uh, arguing against the occupation in Palestine, right? And decide to align themselves with these movements in a way that both is about showing solidarity, but that is also about um, thinking through their relations of domination and militarization and colonialism and extraction in the context of U.S. colonialism through a comparative case, right? And so a lot of times what we see is that activists are really savvy in their alignment with particular international solidarity movements um, uh, to kind of also make an argument about their own kind of enduring condition of colonialism in a decolonized, or in in a society that imagines itself as kind of decolonized, right? Or a world that imagines itself as post-colonial right so that's kind of what i'm working on and i'm really excited i'm going to be on sabbatical next year um to actually work on this so it'll be uh really thrilling so so yeah
0: well uh enjoy the sabbatical
1: thank you. Very <laughs> um, <excited>.
0: those, <laughs> uh, those sound both like really great projects uh marisol i wanted to thank you so much for being on the show today i really enjoyed it uh and take care
1: thank you so much jesse this was great it's a pleasure.